Today's reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, from verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit of into the temple And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Columnist and uh, political pundit David Brooks was speaking in San Francisco last year at the City Arts and Lectures, and he was interviewed by a rabbi. And David Brooks was born to Jewish parents in New York, and he grew up uh, going to Episcopal schools, and he's recently remarried to a woman who is probably a more considered more evangelical Christian, and so he has this variety of religious experiences, and the rabbi was trying to understand how David Brooks could consider himself both Jewish and Christian. And David Brooks says to this, you can't unread the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> God's grandeur shines through to me in that, and in those truths about the poor in spirit, about the meek, the mercy to the merciful, that sermon seems to me such a moral evolution, revolution, and a pristine moral statement that seems to me to be a piece of God. I love that. You can't unread the Sermon on the Mount. There are these words that shine up from us, this life that was lived, that is recorded in the Gospels, the life of Jesus Christ, that you can't unsee or unread. Mary Oliver uses three words for Jesus, which are my favorite descriptions, I think. Tender, luminous, and demanding. Last week when I was preaching at the Sequoia's uh, Vesper service, the pianist played a rendition of Yes, Jesus Loves Me, Yes, Jesus Loves Me, The Bible Tells Me So, which pulled me right back to my Sunday school days and touched me in a place that um, is so deep and, and early in my formation. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. How does the Bible tell us so? And how does Jesus fit into the lens of Scripture? Let's, read, let's pray together. Oh God, we know the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we struggle to know exactly what that means and what it means to us today. Please illuminate our hearts and our minds by your Spirit as we listen and ponder together. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, you who are our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> so in the next four weeks, we'll be talking about the Bible, about its complexity and the variety of voices in it. Um, really, my, um, we'll be going into it more. My perspective on Scripture is that it is a record of a conversation, a very sacred conversation. And it's in the conversation that it finds its holiness, and it's in that conversation as we engage with Scripture that we experience its power and its beauty. 
But there are multiple voices of Scripture. Scripture sometimes argues with itself. Sometimes the writers of Scripture were arguing with each other and taking out their arguments with each other in Scripture. There's all of these voices and so many things going on. And so how do we navigate and what, what lens do we use on Scripture? And really, the, the unarguable way to do that, I think, um, since we are Christians, as Christians, is to use the life and the teachings of Jesus to understand Scripture. And when Jesus was on the earth, I believe that for those who listened to him, it was this moment of incredible truth-telling. I remember the first time I heard um, a, a man named Brian McLaren, who some of you may know, who was really formational for me in my de the development of my faith. The first term, time I heard Brian speak, I could feel my whole body resonating with what he was saying. It was like as if all of the reading I had done and all of the studying and all of the thinking, he was saying what I didn't know yet know how to say. And he was saying it in such a way that, that I knew this was true. This was the way in which I wanted to move. And I think that in some ways that is what the experience was times many hundred times for those who heard Jesus and saw him, the fishermen that he taught, the philosophers that he that encountered him, the doctors, the accountants, they all see in Jesus the, the fulfillment, the actualization of what they knew to be true but maybe didn't exactly know how to say it or what it would look like. And what they experienced in Jesus was not only words, was not only an enfleshment of an embodiment of, of these truths, but also there seemed to be, in following him, this power that rose up within them to live in such a way that was, was modeled and like how he lived. And this is how it spread. Today, the story um, in our, uh, the, our church year today is the presentation of our Lord, which is the day where we remember how Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, brought him into the temple for his circumcision after he had, was, was eight days old, and this was what um, happened in the rituals of the Jewish faith at the time. And this is the last time that we see Jesus until he's about 12 years old. And so Simeon and Anna are two old, a woman, man and a woman who were old, um, wise prophets. Um, you can imagine those, those people that have been around forever, faithfully praying, faithfully being uh, the, the matriarch and patriarchs of their faith at the time. And they hear that Jesus is coming. They, it says through the voice of the Spirit spoke to Simeon, and they come into the temple to see him. And Simeon, when he sees Jesus, proclaims this prophecy over him, that he will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles, the glory of the people of Israel. He says that Jesus will be a point of departure. There will be a decision that people make about Jesus, a revealer of hearts. 
Now, however this event actually happened, where, however you read it, exactly as it is, or maybe someone's hearsay a few, hundred, a few, you know, 60 years later, there's no doubt that what this, this event is saying is that Jesus is coming as this moment of revelation, as the fulfillment of the scriptures, that this baby, this life, is what uh, the gospel writers are saying. This is the lens through which we should understand all of our Hebrew scriptures. And the argument of the gospels, I would say probably for all four gospels in some way, is that, is that Jesus is the lens in which their faith, their Judaism, should be looked at. So that's what we have as Christians, and that's how, how we look at the scriptures and how we understand it. And the Gospels have different perspectives within them. Um, like other places in the Bible, the Gospels have hard sayings. They have conflicting messages somehow, but there is this central picture of Jesus which emerges from that for them as kind of like the tuning fork, the interpretive guide that Christians throughout the ages use, are to use for their thinking, for their acting, for their discerning, and for their praying. Now I think that we are always seeking to understand not only what was happening in 2,000 years ago, but also to make it more real for ourselves in this day. And so a few years ago, I wrote these few paragraphs as I understand Jesus. So I invite you to take them in. There once was a man who loved. Those who dared to look into his eyes risked being loved beyond effort, beyond shame, beyond pride, beyond fear. This was good news for those who had nothing to prove in this world. But such love also threatened to dismantle the tiny kingdoms of others, kingdoms of religious superiority or blind privilege, or identities formed on resentment and defensiveness. Those who could take in such love were transformed. They felt their true selves rising to the surface of the circumstances of their lives. Their souls let go of the limitations of ego to love the world without restraint. Just a taste of this love and you were ruined for lesser loves. It would echo in your heart your mind, and your body forever. Just as the man who loved created communities around him, so did his followers. After all, true love does not exclude or push away. It is always including, always building a bridge, always setting more places at the table, always transcending the false barriers that we have constructed. After the man who loved had gone away, communities continued to arise around the world, in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. They were communities formed by a vision of love that could transform and release the power of love into the world. This is what I think was happening for those early experiencers and followers of Jesus. And this is what I think happens for those of us who find ourselves in this Jesus story. Now, I have to say, Jesus is not always seen this way. I'll never forget a few years ago, a friend of mine was telling me that she uh, attended a church and she said it was pretty good. She liked the music and all that, but there was a lot of that J word. 
<laughs> and I said, J-word? What do you mean, J-word? She goes, you know, Jesus. And indeed, Jesus has been tarnished <laughs> by empire, by co-opting goodness for power, by watering down this love, by dogma over character. Come on in, guys. Um, Dallas Willard says that Jesus has become a gospel of sin management <laughs> rather than uh, this message of love that we see. And so we are always invited to reclaim and return and encounter Jesus once again. Rachel Held Evans says that God didn't give us in Jesus a dogma. God didn't give us a teaching. God gave us a story. God gave us a person. And we encounter Jesus in the same way as they did in the Gospels. That we don't assent to a way of belief, but a way of life. Dallas Willard says, Jesus does not call us to do what he did, but to be as he was, permeated with love. Then the doing of what he did and said becomes the natural expression of who we are in Christ. And so my invitation to you this week is, will you allow this encounter? Will you open yourself up again to these teachings? I'd invite you to take Matthew 5 to 7 and read it this week. Again, read these words of the Beatitude. Read the Sermon on the Mount to consider this encounter, consider looking at your life and your world through the lens of Jesus. We're going to sing the hymn, What is the World Like, in a few moments, and I'd like to read you those words before you reach for your hymnals. This, this is the world that Jesus, the picture of the world Jesus drew. What is the world like when God's will is done? Mustard seeds grow more than we can conce conceive. Roots thread the soil. Branches reach for the sun. This is how God moves us each to believe. What is the world like when God's will is done? Witness the wandering child coming home. Watch as the parent breaks into a run. This is how God longs for us when we roam. What is the world's world like when God's will is done? No more is neighbor, just ally or friend. Peace thrives in places where once there was none. This is how God works when rivalries end. What is the world like when God's will is done? Ready for feasting, we watch through the night, tending our lamps till the new day's begun. This is how God readies us for the light. As we turn to Jesus again, as we consider what he may mean for us now, may this become the world that we are co-creating together. Amen.